Yes. And I just don't think the discrepancy should be so large that in, in effect, you know, when we talk about access to justice, that's really, uh, you know, a broad term. But I think in some ways, you know, if you think of access in the most physical sense, like we go into a courtroom and argue your case, if you are stymied from doing that because the rule book is impenetrable, I just yeah. think we've got, a, we've, we've got a real problem in this country. Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the project coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at Windsor Law. And Julie McFarlane is sitting here trying to make me laugh. Well, Dana <laughs> won't let me do this. the intro music. Oh, sing it. Go ahead. I'm Julie McFarlane, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And now we turn to a very serious topic. Very serious, yes. This week's guests, uh, we've got two, and they'll be familiar, both of them, to our audience if you've been listening since from the beginning, because we are talking again to Colin Feesby and Ranjan Agarwal. That's right. And these two lawyers were pro bono counsel on the landmark Supreme Court of Canada case of Pintea and Johns decided back last spring, 2017. And you may remember that uh, Colin Feesby, who is with Osla Hoskin Harcourt in Calgary, represented the self-represented litigant, Mr. Pintea, who had been asked to pay $83,000 worth in contempt damages. And Ranjan Agwal from Bennett Jones, uh, along with Alana Shai, represented the National Self-Represented Litigants Project because we were permitted to be interveners in the case. It was very exciting. It was the most exciting day. Yes, it was a really great day. And the decision, which was rendered from the bench by the very highest court in the land, mm -hmm. established that self-represented litigants should not be treated in the same way as expert lawyers, and that the court should be flexible where they have made minor procedural mistakes, which can be easily remedied in order that they can still have their case heard and taken seriously. And at the same time, the Supreme Court of Canada endorsed the Canadian Judicial Council's principles on responding to self-represented litigants. So you can imagine we've been pretty interested at mm. NSRLP to see what would happen with this decision. And we've been tracking the case law since April 2017 that has cited to the Pintia decision. Uh, our outstanding research assistants who are working on the case law database have been working on this, in particular Kyla Scarrow, just to give her a shout out. Mm -hmm. And we have now just re released a report on the trends that we're seeing with the interpretation and the application of the decision. And that report is posted, of course, on the website, but we're also put it up today on the podcast page. In summary, there's a fair degree of inconsistency yeah. that we're seeing in the application of Pintea. Probably not surprising, as both of our guests describe, it does need quite a bit of unpacking. But there are some positive mm -hmm. and very promising decisions, especially in Ontario and Newfoundland. But we also have noticed, and we'll be discussing this in these interviews, that the most frequent reference to Pintea is in the Alberta courts. This was originally an Alberta case, and there does seem to be a more negative attitude in those courts and an effort to limit the benefit of Pintea for self-represented litigants. So we decided that having done this work and looked at the case law, that we would take it back to Ranjan and Colin for their take 
on 18 months of post-Pentea case law. Good morning, Colin. How are you? Good. How are you, Julie? Good. Good. Seem to be appropriate to come back to you, given that you brought this case to get your reactions to what's happened in the last 17 months or so since Pintia and Jones was decided by the Supreme Court of Canada. You know, this is obviously a case you really wanted to work on. And what did you see as the problem that Pintia was designed to address that you were asking the Supreme Court of Canada to look at? Obviously, we were trying to get the best result we could for our client, and our client in in that particular instance was someone who had previously been self-represented, and and when we looked at what had happened in his case, it seemed to us that the public issue that was of interest to the Supreme Court of Canada or would be of interest to them was the treatment of self-represented litigants. And as we dug a little deeper, we found that there was cases across the country that featured different kinds of treatment of of self-represented litigants. Mm. We thought it was a ripe issue to bring forward that would also help us achieve our, our goal for our client. And when the court came back, which it did in that rather dramatic moment, I don't think any of us were expecting that day in Ottawa for them to rule from the bench and said that they were going to find in favor of Mr. Pintier and set aside the contempt order. You know, how did you feel about about the outcome? How did you feel about what they said? They also, of course, endorsed the Canadian Judicial Council's statement of principles on unrepresented litigants. I, I think in the first instance, I was, I was surprised because typically in a case like this, you would expect the Supreme Court of Canada to reserve. Mm. We felt that the arguments had obviously gone well, but we're surprised to get a positive outcome so quickly. Yeah. And, and then after being very happy for the client and, and the result, perhaps a little bit of disappointment that the reasons were so short and didn't really unpack all of the detailed arguments that, that we put before the court. Yeah. And then yet farther on, I sort of reflected on it and I think I came to understand why the Supreme Court did what they did. And I think that what they did probably was as effective as if they'd gone on for 25 or 30 pages about the problem. So effectively what they did, and I remember you and I talking about this at the time, was they passed it back to the rest of the courts to unpack, as you put it. I think that's a a good word. And to see how what they had ruled could be applied in different circumstances. And you've now had a, um, a sneak preview of the report that we have now just released which looks at the jurisprudence. We've been tracking it and looking to see what's been happening with this decision when it's been cited and how it's been used. So could you say a little bit about your reaction to the way that this has been unpacked, if you like, across Canada in the last year and a half? Sure. Maybe just to backtrack before mm. I tackle that, is, is I think that the Supreme Court of Canada's endorsement of the Canadian Judicial Council's state on self-represented litigants I think they were smart to do that. Yeah, it was important, yes. Because it's a balanced statement, and I think the Supreme yes. Court of Canada is, is self-aware enough to realize that they maybe don't understand every nuance of what the lower courts are dealing with. And so, in a sense, by endorsing the statement, they allow 
the lower courts to, to wrestle with the problem, and, and I think they were hoping that through subsequent jurisprudence, um, a consistent approach to self-represented litigants would emerge. So now we're 17 months later, I've, I've read your report, and it's interesting to see how it's starting to unfold. I think there's certainly a lot of good that has come out of the, the Pintea case, and, and I think it looks to me like uh, quite a number of courts are taking the message that the Supreme Court intended, which is is for uh, courts to be uh, more flexible and I think perhaps a little more empathetic of the situation in which self-represented litigants often find themselves. So I think that's a very positive thing. Yes. Obviously, a few counter-trends. The, the, the Canadian Judicial Council statement is and it's in a balanced document, so it certainly recognizes some of the challenges that self-represented litigants can sometimes pose to courts, and it does suggest that self-represented litigants have certain uh, obligations. But some of this jurisprudence... Colin, would it be fair to say, seems to take that a little bit further. I mean, we, we heard the Supreme Court of Canada endorse effectively the principle that self-represented litigants are not the same as people who are represented by counsel, and there should be flexibility and understanding of that in relation to some minimal judicial assistance. And certainly, we know from the statement that self-represented litigants, and I don't think anybody but there seems to be a sense that you can forfeit assistance in some of these cases, either because of past bad behavior or because you're just too darn smart. Well, I think there's a couple of things there that need to be tackled. One, on, on the, the trend that seems to be train of cases that suggests that people are, are smart and sophisticated and therefore not entitled to help. I think courts, when they see somebody who, who is, by all accounts, capable and intelligent before them, they assume that they are capable of navigating the legal system. And that's not necessarily the case, and I think that courts should be careful to jump to that conclusion. So that, that would be my caution there. And then in terms of forfeiting the right to help, I think courts need to be careful in distinguishing between people who are struggling with the legal system either because of a lack of capacity, whether that's education or language or what have you, or they're struggling with the legal system because of mental illness, which I think is, is something that is, is fairly prevalent in some of these cases, or whether they're genuinely a vexatious litigant, because you certainly see instances where people are truly vexatious litigants. And there's a danger when courts aren't making distinctions between why people are struggling with the court system. So, so that that's a little bit troubling. Hard, this is about a degree of intentionality, I think, which yeah. you know is something that is often difficult for a court to determine. Um, and obviously, at the, at the NSROP, we become concerned when we see a kind of default to assume that somebody who makes a mistake did it intentionally. When it may be, you know, it's much more likely they've made it because they don't realize they're making a mistake. That's right. And, and, and the great risk is that we're dealing with sometimes judges who are overworked and, and understandably tired and frustrated and self-represented litigants uh, quite often present additional work and additional burden and, and it, sometimes judges are reacting in a human way uh, when we really are asking them to do better. Now, I can't close the conversation, Colin, especially given 
your base in Calgary without asking you if you have any comment on what seems to be some regional disparity amongst this jurisprudence. The cases that we just mentioned uh, that look at ways in which uh, Pintia would not be applied either because you're too smart or because you're seen as being intentionally vexatious do seem to mostly cluster in Alberta. Do you have any comments on that? Candidly, I don't know what's going on and, and I think more than anything you're finding I think should prompt further investigation. Um, when I just go on Canly, the database, uh, with all of the cases, I see that there's 38 cases that have cited Pintan. Mm-hmm. Of those, 19 are in Alberta. Mm-hmm. So a full 50% of cases citing Pintan are in Alberta, and yet, you know, Ontario has 10. Ontario has four times the population of Alberta. So. Exactly, yes. It's not being used as much. It's just a question of how it's being used. Yes, so it, it makes me wonder whether there's something going on in Alberta that's a bit different. And and I would note a couple of things. One, former Chief Justice was quite vocal in his concerns about the lack of judges in Alberta and yeah. federal governments not appointing enough. Uh, there's a, I think even now there's still a number of open positions. There was something of a work-to-rule campaign in, in, in Alberta. We, we had our uh, mandatory judicial mediation canceled and so forth. So there may be a workload burden uh, on judges in Alberta that is distinct from other provinces. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. There also, if you recall, us before the Supreme Court of Canada, there were some pre-existing Alberta cases which were negative towards self-represented living mm-hmm. in a fairly mm-hmm. colorful way. And I recall pointing those out to Justice Brown, and, and he took some umbrage at, and he took some umbrage at me pointing that out. And so I don't know whether there, there may be, what, what we're seeing may be some residue of, of, of a, an earlier approach that existed. But Pintea came out of Alberta, and yeah. it's interesting that it has caused the most controversy or most, uh, there's been the most debate about it after the fact here in Alberta. Well, I really appreciate these comments, Colin, and I think this is something we're going to be going on talking about as it develops further for a long time. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you, Julie. You guys are doing great work. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Hello, Ranjan. It's Julie. How are you? Hi, Julie. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for being willing to do this. I know it's a busy day for you. So Yeah, no, it's no problem. No problem. I really I really appreciate it. So I'm gonna go straight in here and, and, and ask you, I know you've had a little bit of an opportunity to look at our report now, but I want to take you back to when you first got involved in this, which of course was as our um pro bono, very generous pro bono counsel on the intervener application. Why did you decide to jump in here, and what did you see as the problem, if you like, that the Pintea case was asking the Supreme Court of Canada to to think about? We were interested in getting involved in the case because, as civil litigators, I think we have a front row seat to some of the challenges that the court has when it has self-represented litigants 
in the courtroom. And we think, both Elon and I, who were co-counsel to the project, yes. think that there are ways in which the court could be more sensitive and ultimately rectify uh, some of those challenges. Yes. In particular, and one of the reasons why we wanted to make the argument around the Canadian Judicial Council's principles was that we think there's a lack of consistency. Uh, the judges don't have a lot of guidance. And we remember our, our, our bench is very diverse. And by diverse, I mean there are judges who, are, who were called to the bar 40 or 50 years ago. There's going to be judges who were called to the bar 10 years ago. There's going to be people who practiced in small towns, people who practiced in big cities, people who were solicitors and never practiced in court at all, and people who may have dealt with self-represented litigants on a regular basis. And I think generationally, how uh, some judges dealt with self-represented litigants is very different than perhaps how a younger judge who has committed time, for example, to pro bono representation might deal with a self-represented litigant. And so from our perspective, having consistency so that judges across the country, no matter where they are practicing, no matter where they're sitting, can point to a set of guidelines was fundamentally important. So that leads me, obviously, to the next question, which is, given what we have tried to do with the 38 occasions in which Pintea has been cited across the country in the last 17 months and the observations and the trends that we're noting there, what do you think is happening on the consistency front? Because as I think we all recognize, the statement of principles was a really great starting point, but it also needed a lot of unpacking in individual cases. Well, I, I think I think your report sheds a lot of light on the fact that the principles and the Pentea case are being embraced in many quarters, mm. and judges are taking the opportunity to breathe life into what the statement of principles is meant to be and into what the case says uh, from yeah. a holistic level. But I do think that there are always going to be quarters where you know, ultimately judges decide to march to their own beat. Uh, and it may be that that's a regional issue. It may be a generational issue. It may be, you know, related to the kind of cases that come before them. You know, I think one interesting fact, which, which I don't think, you know, the project or, you know, really any organization could ever adequately study, is how the principles are being applied in cases that aren't being reported. I mean, it's, yes. it's one thing to have a judge decide that he or she's going to write decision and obviously reference the principles, but you and I both know that a multitude, and I would think the vast majority of decisions made by judges are made in handwritten endorsements yes. or in directions from the bench. I mean, what I will say is this, though, anecdotally, and of course, I'm partial because I was involved in the case, but anecdotally, I have heard much more chatter when I am in court about the Pentea principles. I mean, I'll give you one oh. example. Um, you know, we, we argued the Pentea case in the Supreme Court of Canada. My brother, who's a lawyer, was actually in the midst of a long trial with a self-represented litigant uh -huh. at the same time we were in court on Pentea. And he mentioned to me that two days later, after Pentea, one of the other lawyers stood up and brought the case to the judge's attention because it had just been released. And, of course, he jokingly uh, reminded uh, himself that I was on the case. But that's an example of where Pentea decision doesn't show up in the reasons, but obviously the lawyer and the judge thought it was important enough that they revisit the principles or revisit the decision. And I would have thought that that's an example that's probably being replicated in lots of courtrooms across the country. Right. And it's very difficult to know, as you say, what some of the kind of attitudinal and cultural changes are especially when you start factoring in, as you said at the opening, the generational differences and people's different experiences with self-represented litigants. And I, and I think that, that 
the, the report shows, if nothing else, that we are still kind of reaching for that consistency in our reported decisions. So given that, what do you think comes next? I mean, what would you expect to be some of the places you might expect the um, use of this decision to be that will further, if you like, clarify and hopefully give us greater consistency across the country? I'll tell you what I'd like to see. I'd like to see a judge or a rules committee or somebody articulate in concert with these principles the unwritten rules that we as lawyers all know about the practice of law before our court, but which end up really frustrating self-represented litigants do reason. I mean, I'll give you one example, and I, I use this example often when I'm talking to um, students or associates about pro bono work. You know, the rules of civil procedure in Ontario say that if you do not file a defense within 20 days or 30 days, if you filed a notice of intent to defend, you can be uh, noted in default and the plaintiff can go get default judgment. Uh, that rule is broken in almost yeah. every case where the parties yeah. are represented. As a matter yeah. of professional conduct, if I yeah. ask the other side for leeway, they should give it to me. Exactly. But, but I can see why a litigant who looks at the rule book and goes and marches off to court and gets a default judgment, not knowing that this practice or convention exists and who isn't bound by the rules of professional conduct, is then frustrated when he or she is told, well, actually, that rule doesn't really exist. You know, it's very easy for me to set aside a notice of default. Uh, And in fact, if you don't consent to it, you may have to pay my costs of me bringing a motion. And I think the rule book is replete with examples like that. Examples of that, yes. That, yep. that ultimately, why have the rules if average people who read them have to know about some unspoken or unwritten rule? Over time, I've come to see that really as a matter of privilege. I mean, I think when we, you know, when we talk about privilege, for example, in the sense of race or class, it's really about knowing the inside game. It's about being right. an insider. And in some ways, I think lawyers have done the same thing and litigators, especially when it comes to the rules of civil procedure. And they often use that, I think, as a tool or leverage against the self represented litigant. Right, who is then left confounded because they thought that they'd looked at the rules, but what they didn't know were the unwritten convention. And we certainly hear that all the time at the project. And it's another of these examples of how turning the system inside out with so many self-represented people does change everything, not just the rules, not just how the rules are applied, but also, as you say, how the unwritten conventions are upheld. Well, I mean, I'll give you one a brief example. I mean, I acted as amicus curiae in a case where there were two self-represented litigants. And the issue there was how do you reopen a trial if new evidence has emerged? I learned through that case that it is really, really difficult to understand both what the law is and what the rules are if you're a lawyer, trained as a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. And so it was no surprise to me that this case went up to the Court of Appeal and back down again. But one of the reasons why we got involved as an amicus in that case was that we actually could solve that problem because of our legal training very quickly. Like the months that the litigants had spent mm. sorting this out, we were able to fix that problem literally within days. Yes. And I just don't think the discrepancy should be so large that in, in effect, you know, when we talk about access to justice, that's really, uh, you know, a broad term. But I think in some ways, you know, if you think of access in the most physical sense, like we go into a courtroom and argue your case, if you are stymied from doing that because the rule book is impenetrable, I just yes. think we've got, a, we've, we've got a real problem in this country. Right. And so building a, a more accessible system, in fact, means building a system that's a lot more transparent as well as a lot less complex.
Right, and, and I look, I mean, we're talking about self-representing against. I, I think these rules and the unspoken conventions trip up lots of young lawyers who are trying to offer access to justice yeah. options to uh, litigants who may not have means. So this isn't just about, I think, self-represent litigants. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the rule book should not be, you know, the Bible, as it were, for only those lawyers who are in the most sophisticated of practices and have the ability to understand what happens, you know, right. under the cover of darkness when nobody really knows what's happening sort of transparently. Brian Dan, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate this and your insight. I'll talk to you soon, I hope. Thanks, Julie. Bye. Bye-bye. It's been very interesting for us to be following the uh, outcome in all the different courts across the country uh, related to Pintia over the last year and a half. And I was really excited to hear these conversations that you had with Colin and Ranjan because they've been so involved in this, yeah. in this case and were interested to read our report. One of the things that both of them talked about as kind of their reasons for getting involved in the first place was that they were both noticing that there was a lack of consistency uh, amongst exactly. the judiciary and how they deal with SRLs yeah. and wanting there to be some kind of impetus for creating some consistency. Yeah, and that that was that was one of the reasons, maybe the most important reason that they both took on this mm-hmm. case uh, on a pro bono basis. And of course, what we're seeing, and they both point to this, is still a lack of consistency. Now that's yeah. not super surprising mm-hmm. um, because, as they also both indicated, there was a lot of unpacking to be done mm-hmm. about this decision, and there are so many different contexts and challenges and issues and different kinds of self-represented litigants that it's very, very difficult to have generic rules here. But I think that one of the things that has made it really important to track this is we want to see if the spirit of Pintia is being brought, moved forward. We hear quite often from self-represented litigants who bring up Pintia in their own arguments and they don't always feel like that's given really true consideration. And I think the spirit of Pintia is that SRLs are the outsiders. They are at a disadvantage and that for the most part, they are going to need some, even if it's fairly minimal, assistance from the judiciary. Right. And part of that is one of the points that Colin brought up was this issue that courts need to be careful about not jumping to conclusions about SRLs. And one of those is not not assuming that if an SRL is smart and intelligent and carries themselves well and is prepared, that means they don't need any help. or And they couldn't possibly have made a mistake. They must have done it on purpose. So there's that. (laughs) And then there's, uh, you know, the other issue that is related to this, that trying to distinguish between the people who are just kind of genuinely struggling with whatever roadblocks they have to their understanding, whether it's, you know, specific issues like disabilities um, or whether it's just the fact that they're not lawyers and haven't gone to law school and don't understand, you know, a lot of the things that the rest of the people around them understand in the court versus there are some people who may be intentionally causing mischief and and doing things deliberately to cause problems. Right. And I mean, one of the things that we've seen as the case law database has grown Mm -hmm. and our next report, one of our next reports is going to be on this whole issue around vexatiousness, is that there are a lot of assumptions getting made about intentionality. Yeah. 
And I think that, again, the spirit of Pintia was there should be an assumption, unless proven otherwise, that an SRL is simply making a genuine mistake when they haven't dotted an I or crossed a T. And by the way, a lot of lawyers have problems with this too, (laughs) and we'll talk about that in a moment, and not an assumption of making mischief. And one of the things that really worries me about this going forward is I just don't know how our judicial officers who have been trained to work as adjudicators on the bench, I don't know how they are going to have the training to be able to distinguish between somebody who is intentionally creating mischief and somebody who is just making an honest mistake. I mean, part of this is that attitude of not defaulting to think the worst of people. I think it's, it's sometimes going to be difficult yeah. uh, to make those assessments. And those assessments are now proving to be critical mm. in terms of how much assistance people are given, what orders for costs might be made. And it's a very uh, fragile edifice that mm. we're building this mm. on. And I think that's something that really is a, is a problem. Yes. And I think kind of part of that fragile edifice is this issue of the unwritten rules about uh, the court system and the justice system. And as Ranjan talks about, he would like to see somebody articulate those unwritten rules that Mm. end up frustrating SRLs so much. And Mm. you end up with kind of these insider versus outsider perspectives where lawyers and, you know, other people in the justice system who understand the rules perhaps end up, whether they set out to do this or not, end up sometimes using using them against. Yeah. I mean, I'm so glad that Ranjan talked about this because I think it's been obvious to us at the project now for a long time Mm -hmm. that self-represented litigants are frustrated by the fact that even if they learn the rules and they follow the rules, as far as they can see, they followed the rules, they will sometimes come up against an unwritten conventional practice. And Ranjan gave the perfect example that lawyers will let another lawyer off when they've missed a deadline. But they won't let a self-represented litigant off. And obviously, this is a double standard. Yeah. And, you know, that means that the challenge in our court rules, if we're going to continue to see more and more people representing themselves, is not just the enormous challenge of making those rules clear enough for people without legal training to follow them. And often they're not clear enough for people with legal training to yeah. follow them, I should add. But it's also the challenge of somehow opening up all those unwritten conventions and recognizing that they can also cause an inequality. I mean, the system has functioned like this, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine, Mm. for a very long time. And it's a different landscape now. And those are the kinds of of changes that I think we haven't even begun to see yet. And as far as some of the the findings in our report, and we would encourage all of our listeners to to read the report, as Julie mentioned at the top of the episode, we will post that link along with the materials for the podcast episode today, there are, we find in our report that in some jurisdictions, there seem to be some differences in how Pinty is getting applied. And we would agree with Colin and say that those warrant further study and we will continue to. to, We will continue to track this. Yeah. And we hope to see more consistency, but we're also going to remain vigilant for ways in which we feel that the spirit of Pintia is not being taken forward. That's right. We're like Batman. This week in other news, we're recapping one big story. As you might have seen on social media, 
the NSRLP successfully hosted a two-day dialogue event at the University of Windsor Faculty of Law. This marks five years from the original dialogue event titled Opening the Dialogue, which was organized to launch Dr. McFarland's national study on SRLs and to introduce the SRL phenomenon as a topic requiring urgent discussion and deeper understanding in the Canadian justice system and among the general public. The result of that event was the creation of the NSRLP itself, as attendees agreed that a body should exist to develop further research, continue the conversation, and advocate for SRLs in our justice system. This past weekend, we held an event called Continuing the Dialogue, in the hope that we would be able to revisit our goals, evaluate our progress, and set priorities going forward. We're pleased to announce that this event was productive and a resounding success, bringing together self-represented litigants, judges, lawyers, policymakers, A to J advocates, and academics, ultimately producing concrete recommendations and goals on the following critical access to justice issues. First, affordable private legal services, including paraprofessional services. Second, creating new spaces for access to justice, including online technologies, libraries, and trusted intermediaries. Third, in-court assistance for SRLs and court-based programming. Fourth, public legal services and pro bono models. And fifth, interaction between SRLs and justice system professionals. We attempted to live tweet some of the key points and quotes during the event, and you can find some links to some of the Twitter threads on our website. Our team of research assistants were also taking notes during the various sessions and will be compiling some of the findings and key takeaways. We also conducted a series of short interviews with participants where we asked the question, what is one practical change that will make a real difference in access to justice for Canadians? We'll be compiling those responses in a future podcast episode, so stay tuned for that as well. Finally, a lot of the goals that were set during the dialogue event involved new projects and resources that the NSRLP can work on, in particular aiming for a two-year time horizon for certain key initiatives. Other organizations that attended have also committed to certain key measurable goals and we're excited for all the positive outcomes that will have been spurred on by this dialogue events. We hope you'll join us in our continuing journey to improve access to justice. That's it for this week of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next week for an interesting conversation with Justice David Price, a judge from the Superior Court of Justice in Brampton, Ontario. 